Good morning, church family. This, uh, this day is a, it's kind of a special day for us. As I had mentioned uh, about a month ago or so, a little, over, a little less than a month ago, that our church would begin candidating two individuals, two young men, uh, for our position, uh, for two positions as assistant pastors. And so today we have our first pastoral candidate coming here and uh, to preach to us. Normally during the pastoral candidate visits, we begin with basically two weekend visits, kind of a Friday to Sunday deal, and where they you know, speak to our Friday fellowships, meet with people on Saturdays, and then Sunday kind of preach and have a Q&A time. Uh, something like that. And so, but with our first candidate, uh, we don't need to do that because he's here with us all the time. That's Pastor Roger, and he'll be one of our pastoral candidates. And so basically, you know, from here on out until we decide, until we, you know, make, decide whether to make a call to him to be our assistant pastor, you can ask him any questions you wish. So, you know, just like you would with a, he's here Monday, Friday, you don't, you don't need to wait for the special weekends. Just say, hey, I want to have a candidating coffee meeting with you. Call him up and he'll be happy to uh, have coffee with you and talk to you all about the church and his visions, his, uh, his, uh, his thoughts on whatever ministry, whatever uh, things of the scriptures may speak upon. Uh, but it is uh, just to kind of, with him, we're having a little different schedule where it's not really over two weekends. Uh, where this is his first, in fact, his first official candidating visit. He's preaching today. And so we, we're going to push the Friday and Saturday meetings all the way till June 2nd and 3rd. So that's when the net, his, his uh, first Friday and Saturday times will be with us. And then his formal weekend the, will be, his second formal weekend will be June 16th through 18th. So you can just mark those in your calendars or just kind of just, uh, just show up at church and you'll, you'll be a part of these things. So uh, please be in prayer for Pastor Roger, for the church, as we uh, consider God's will to uh, whether he would be the Lord's will for us as an assistant pastor here at the church. Um, and uh, as he comes to preach today, oh, just looking forward to hearing God's word uh, through him. And just as we, a lot of times when we have candidates, we tend to evaluate um, the sermon. And, in this, in the, and if I could just, <laughs> instead of telling you not to evaluate the sermon, really the question is, uh, the challenge for us is, uh, can the man Will he be faithful to preach God's word to us? Will he proclaim God's word faithfully to us? And that's what we want. And so I pray that you be encouraged and blessed by Pastor Roger as he comes to preach God's word to us this morning. Let's warmly welcome him this morning. Well, good morning again to you all. Um, our text that we're going to be taking a look at this morning is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Now, you probably thought by looking at your bulletins that we would be uh, in Colossians one twenty-eight, but just to surprise you, keep you on your toes, I decided to name it Him We Proclaim, but take you to 2 Corinthians rather than Colossians. So, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, the Word of God says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we study this text this morning, that you would give us ears to hear. And eyes to see. We echo Moses as we pray, Lord, show us your glory. Show us more of who you are. Help us to see even clearer just your goodness and your greatness. And help us learn how to respond to that. We pray, Lord, that you would honor yourself through the preaching of the word. Glorify yourself. Make yourself known. 
and help us to love you even more. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. How many of you have experienced something so great, so phenomenal, that it has become utterly life-changing for you, even to this day? Probably all of us, right? Well, for me, one of those things is my first exposure to specialty coffee. Now, some of you are probably looking at me and you're just like, what, are you some sort of coffee snob or something? Well, you know, just a little bit. Um, but, and you might even be wondering, what's specialty coffee? Well, specialty coffee, uh, a very quick uh, definition of specialty coffee is essentially, it's, it's just coffee that's grown in certain regions around uh, the world and the, the soil has impact on the way that the flavors come out of the coffee when you roast it. And typically, you go on a light roast so that you can get more of the flavor that comes out of the bean. Now, the first time that I had specialty coffee, I was in seminary, and one of my roommates brought back a bag of specialty coffee from a local shop that roasted their own beans. And he said, dude, got to try this. So, you know, being loving coffee, uh, needing coffee, by the way, um, it was was a no-brainer. We had to go get coffee. So we ground the beans, brewed it. And uh, we were about to take our first sip. And, uh, well, one thing to note, we, don't have any, we didn't have any creamer in, in our apartment. We were you know, poor seminary students. And, uh, you know, we also sat around studying all day. So, you know, save the calories for something better. So we just drank it black. But, you know, if, if you've had black coffee before, whether it's church coffee, whether it's, you know, coffee from other other places, you know that coffee tends to have a really bitter taste, right? It just kind of socks you in the face. It's like, hello, I'm here. Um, and I was expecting that. I was expecting to have just a bunch of acid on my tongue and just be like, oh, what is that? I was expecting that. But with the first sip, a flavor explosion occurred in my mouth. It was just like, whoa, what is this? I'm getting hints of blueberry. I'm getting hints of mint. Some, you know, a little bit of floral finish. I was like, whoa, what is up with this coffee? I had no idea that black coffee could taste that good. Oh, also, no bitterness whatsoever. I was like, whoa, what is this? And so, since I've had that first taste of specialty coffee, that's all that I really want uh, if I'm going to a coffee shop here in the city, it's probably a coffee shop that specializes in specialty coffee. I'm looking for specialty coffee. That's all I want. That's all I want to have. I'll drink the other coffee in a pinch, but I really don't care for it. I'd rather have specialty coffee. Now, some of you probably don't relate with me whatsoever when it comes to my, my experience with specialty coffee. You're just like, coffee? That's only for weak people who can't stay up, and you're probably right. Um, <laughs> But you probably could also, you, you could relate with me in, in the sense that you've experienced something so life-changing that it affects the way that you view life, it affects the way that you, um, it affects your value system, it affects your actions. You know, some of you haven't gotten married, right? That's life-changing. You can't, you can't live life uh, the same way that you did before when you got married. Uh, some, for some of you, going to college was something that was life-changing for you. So we've all experienced some of these things. But one thing that we all have in common for sure is, well, at least for Christians, we have in common the fact that we've been saved by Jesus Christ. We've all experienced the life-changing effects of the gospel, how it can change everything about us, that we are no longer slaves to sin, uh, but we are slaves to righteousness. We once had lives that were diametrically opposed to God, but now, rather than wanting to be on the outside, on the opposite side of where God is, we want to be with Him, where He is. We want to love Him. We want to live a life for Him. And such was the case for the Apostle Paul. Before his conversion, Paul was known more by his Jewish name, Saul. And he made a name for himself as he went around persecuting Christians. And Paul was on the road to Damascus, Acts 9. He was on the road to Damascus. And what was he doing? He was on his way to persecute more Christians. But it was here on the road to Damascus that Paul experienced something so life-changing that it affected everything that he did from then on out. He had an encounter 
with the risen Christ. And that encounter with the risen Christ impacted Paul so much that not only did he repent of his sin and believe upon Christ, but he went out and he continued to proclaim the truth and the glory of the gospel to everyone that he could talk to in spite of severe persecution on his own. Paul was beaten many times. He was shipwrecked. He was brought to the point of death many times. And you have to wonder to yourself, Paul, why? Why would you, after experiencing all these things, continue to go around trying to proclaim the gospel if you know that the only, that the only thing it's going to bring you is pain and suffering? I don't know about you, but I'd probably give up after I get uh, beaten to uh, an inch within my life. But why did Paul go forward? Because he saw on the road to Damascus God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, to that, and from that point on, nothing mattered to him more than that. That was all that he cared for. That was all that he wanted. And so we're going to take a look at his life. We're going to take a look at an aspect of his apostolic ministry this morning. We're going to see, we're going to examine three principles Three principles from Paul's apostolic ministry, which ought to inform us and fuel our own worship of God. Okay? Three principles that we learn from Paul's apostolic ministry, which ought to fuel our worship of God. That first principle that we're going to learn is gospel mercy motivates boldness. Gospel mercy motivates boldness. In case you've never studied the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is Paul's third letter to the Corinthians. I know it's says 2 Corinthians, not 3 Corinthians. But the letter that was, that, uh, the, it's the third letter because there was a letter written in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's called the severe letter. Basically, the severe letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians was a, well, severe letter in response to the lack of action, the lack of repentance of the Corinthian believers from 1 Corinthians. And so, things did get better after the severe letter. But there was also a threat that rose up in the city of Corinth, and that is the presence of false teachers in the church. And these false teachers, they were trying to discredit Paul and his ministry to the Corinthians. And so Paul writes here in the book of 2 Corinthians in order to defend his apostolic ministry. And so that's where we parachute ourselves into here. Now we look at verse 1 and it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry... Now, granted, we haven't studied this text uh, in a long time, so we're parachuting right in to chapter 4, verse 1. So, naturally, your question should be, what is this ministry that Paul's talking about? What is he talking about? Well, um, our, our answer is found back in chapter 3, verse 6 to 18. I'm not going to read it for you, but basically, Paul is talking about the ministry of the gospel and how it differs in its ability to save compared to the Old Testament law. While the Old Testament law was, in fact, the perfect word of God, it did not, it did not provide a way for salvation. It did not provide a way for salvation. The Old Testament law told you what you need to be if you were to have a relationship with God, but it never answered the question of how can I stand right before God permanently? You'll notice that in the Old Testament law, there's a lot of sacrifices, And these sacrifices covered sin temporarily. And that's why these sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again and again. There's this one sacrifice, the sacrifice of the atonement. It's hugely significant. This was the one that actually gave forgiveness of sin. But it was only offered once a year. It was only offered once a year. Can you imagine that? You just went through the sacrifice of atonement. You've been atoned for the entire year. And then you go outside the temple. You trip, you fall, and you sin because you said something not so nice. And, uh uh-oh, you got to wait till next year to get covered again. Can you believe that? That'd be really difficult, wouldn't it? You'd have no assurance of hope whatsoever. But the Old Testament law was always 
meant to point to something greater, was always meant to point to the need for someone greater, someone who would come in and actually establish righteousness, not for a period of time, and then you have to reapply it, but forever. It points to the need for a Savior. And because God knew that, because God already had planned that, He intervened. He knew it was impossible for us to work our way to salvation. So he himself intervened. And he did so by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to become a man. So that he could die on the cross. Rise from the dead. Thus bringing salvation to all who believe in him and repent of their sins. And this, this ministry of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this ministry is what Paul is talking about. That's the ministry that they have. Now look, he says, the compa- he compares the ministry that he has to mercy. He compares the ministry that he has to mercy. And it illustrates an important aspect about gospel, about gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is not a privilege that you earn. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you are deemed worthy of just because, just because you've said the prayer. It's not. Gospel ministry, just like salvation, is something that God graciously gives believers, just as he graciously gives mercy. If Paul and if we were to receive salvation alone, that would be more than enough for us, would it not? That would be more than enough. You don't need anything else outside of that. But God gives us something much more. Not only are we believers, not only are we saved by grace through faith, but we also get to play a part in gospel ministry. God grants that to us as well. And so recognizing this, recognizing that God has graciously given gospel ministry to him, he has boldness. And so he says here, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Another way to translate that is, we do not become cowardly, or we do not become timid. Paul had no reason to lose heart, to become cowardly, to become timid, despite the opposition against him because God gave him this ministry privilege to proclaim the power of the gospel to save. And this ministry privilege is a ministry privilege that far exceeded Moses' ministry privilege. Moses was just given the privilege of telling you what righteousness was. Paul had the privilege of telling you how we are able to get that righteousness. And that righteousness is from Jesus Christ. So instead of becoming discouraged and cowardly, Paul explains that as a result of receiving this gospel ministry, the response naturally needs to be a renouncing of the things hidden because of shame. Now you're probably thinking, what's that? What does that mean? What is the things hidden because of shame? What are the things hidden because of shame. Well, generally speaking, we would probably say that the things hidden because of shame is sin. Sin. Most of our sin that other people see is things that we kind of look over. We give excuses for. You know, when, it, when you're angry, uh, when you're a little prideful, we can see sin like that. Right? We give we kind of give excuses for that. We're, we're more okay with those outward sins than we are with the inward sins. And if those are the only things that people know about us, we'd probably be okay with it. We'd be fine with it. But, on the other hand, there are a lot of sins that we commit inwardly that we would rather not other people know that we, that we commit. Why? Why is that? Because of shame. Because of shame. Because we know that, or we fear, that if people know what we struggle with, that they'll look at us differently. That they won't respect us anymore. That they won't care for us anymore. We're ashamed of some of our secret sins, and we'd rather not let people know 
what these sins are. Whether it's something that you think, whether it's something that you do, we just don't want other people to know our secret sins. How does it show up? Well, it shows up a lot in, or the shame shows up a lot in prayer groups and small groups. How often do you, in prayer group and small group, because you don't want people to know how you're doing and what what you're actually struggling with, you just say, oh, you know, life's okay. I've got work. School's kind of hard. You can pray for me for my, you know, project. We say those things, but otherwise everything's okay, right? We don't share everything that we're struggling. We're not transparent with one another. Why? Because we're afraid. Because we're afraid that if other people actually see how dark our hearts are, that they just wouldn't respect us anymore. Brothers and sisters, true accountability, true accountability means that we're transparent with one another. It doesn't mean that we hide our sins from one another. It doesn't mean that we obfuscate. We need to confess our sins to one another. That's how we hold each other accountable. Everything is not all right, and that's okay. We're all sinners. Christ died for that. So let's motivate each other. Let's come alongside one another to help each other move more towards Christ-likeness. You can't do that if you don't share. You can't do that if you say, oh, no, everything's fine. The things hidden because of shame generally speak of sin, but Paul does, in fact, have a more specific meaning in mind here. He also describes it as walking in craftiness and adulterating the word of God. Walking in craftiness refers to someone who's being a deceiver in general. Uh, And if you remember that Paul is fighting false teachers, he's probably talking about how they were using scripture, they were using their credentials in order to deceive other people to think that they're better than they are. Um, This next one, not adulterating the word of God, Paul's ministry was one that proclaimed the word of God in its fullness. Unlike the false teachers, he did not add to the scriptures. He did not subtract to the scriptures or manipulate God's word in any way, but presented God's word as God intended it to be revealed. Instead of using the word of God in order to accomplish his own purposes, Paul renounced these methods that his accusers used in order to boost their own stock. And instead, he allows for the word of God to demonstrate his trustworthiness. He says, he says, But by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul's saying, I don't need to wave around my credentials. I don't need to wave around letters of recommendation for you to accept me, Corinthians. Listen to what I say. Listen to what I teach and preach. Essentially, he's saying... If you recognize that our teaching and preaching is consistent with God's word, that's all the commendation that you need. Those are the only credentials that you need. A modern day equivalent would be when we look at pastors. When we look at pastors. It doesn't matter whether a man went to a seminary like the master's seminary. It doesn't matter if he has multiple master's degrees or multiple doctorates. Those degrees... Those credentials, they might mean something to the outside world, but really, those things don't matter at all. What matters more, the crucial question is, does the man rightly teach the word of God? Does he teach and preach all that God has revealed and commanded in the scriptures as God intended? If so, it doesn't matter. Whether he went to Masters, whether he went to Dallas, whether he went to Southern, or any other kind of seminary. doesn't matter. What matters is, does he preach the word of God? And that's what Paul's saying here. I preach the word of God. I preach it in its fullness. I give you all that it says. I shouldn't need to wave around letters of recommendation or any other kind of credentials. What I teach tells you what I'm about. These false teachers, they didn't teach the scriptures rightly. But Paul, he does. He upholds scripture. He honors scripture. And he teaches it rightly. Why? Why is he so bold to face his accusers head on? To unflinchingly teach the word? Because of gospel mercy. That mercy which is demonstrated in God's gracious gift of salvation 
motivates boldness. It allows for people not to be discouraged, not to be cowardly in the face of adversity. Why? Because that sweet mercy that God gives us in salvation is the same mercy that allows for us to be much more than just those who are saved by grace. It allows for us to be participants, full participants in gospel ministry. We get to hold out the light to others. We get to point back to the cross and say, there is hope. Though you are deeply in trouble with God tonight or this day, there is hope. You do not have to go to hell. God does love you. He has made a way for you to have relationship with him. And it's through Christ and Christ alone. That's exciting, isn't it? The fact that we get to hold out the truth of the gospel. We get to proclaim to other people there is hope. There is salvation. And that's exciting. That's encouraging. That's motivating. But despite this courage, despite this boldness, we also have to be a little sober as well. When we consider that there are still people who, though they hear the truth of the gospel, will still reject it. And that leads us to our next principle we can learn from Paul's apostolic ministry. And that is gospel rejection motivates sobriety. Gospel rejection motivates sobriety. Paul writes in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Some of the false teachers were claiming that Paul's gospel message was powerless or defective because his ministry, in comparison to theirs, just did not get the same results. And Paul concedes that fact. He said, sure, maybe our gospel is veiled. But if it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are unbelieving, who are perishing, those who are perishing. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, Paul, that's an intellectual cop-out. You can't say that. Just, it's kind of like saying, um, it's not my fault they don't believe. They're just dumb, so they can't understand it. It's their fault, not mine. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is pointing to a theological truth. Those who do not recognize God as God, who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, they can't see that truth because they're spiritually dead. They're spiritually dead, and thus, because they're spiritually dead, they're incapable of perceiving spiritual things. How do we know this? Paul says in verse 4, that uh, those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the, go- of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Where have we heard something like this before? Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, they're just terms that describe Satan. And it shows how Satan has been allowed to, at this time at least, continue on in his activities of deception, rebellion against God, until that time where God will bring final judgment. It is difficult. It is difficult to understand why God continues to allow Satan to operate freely, at least from a human perspective. But we do know that God is not yet done with the work that he has here on earth. 2 Peter 3, 9-10, it gives us a sneak peek into what God is waiting for. As it reminds us that God is not slow about his promise. He will save people from their sins. He will bring back believers to be with him in heaven. He will remove the stain of sin from all of creation. He will judge Satan, the demons, and all who do not believe for eternity. He will establish his kingdom. But at the current time, he is being patient. He's being patient because he is not willing, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has opened up this time right now so that people might still be saved. But make no mistake, God will not be patient forever. God will not be patient forever. 
Now, God, he's working all things together to accomplish his purposes. And we can't always see what that work entails. But what we can know with absolute assurance is this. Actually, a couple things. We know that God loves us. We know that he cares for us. That he wants what's best for us. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. No matter how many valleys that you have to descend, no matter how many mountains you have to climb, God is trying to get you to where he wants you to be so that you can be an even more effective witness of the gospel. He wants you to become more like Christ. And for each of us, that journey looks a little different. Sometimes he does have to break. But those whom he breaks, he also binds up and he heals those wounds. And so he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to learn to trust him. Now, going back to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, you know, Satan, he blinds the minds of those who do not believe so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice, Paul doesn't say Satan blinds the eyes. He says Satan blinds the minds. This is not a mistake on Paul's part. Paul did not forget his anatomy. Okay? He's completely intentional here. When he says that, God, that, sorry, when, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, he's saying, or he's illustrating the irrationality of sin. When Satan instigated, what, what Satan instigated in the garden was sin uh, with Adam and Eve was the irrationality of sin. It, it takes what is right before you, right before your eyes, and it distorts your understanding of it so that you won't respond correctly to it. You can have the truth staring you right in the face. But as you look at it, at it as you try and interpret it, you won't understand it correctly. For example, Romans 1.18.20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Every single person who has ever lived has seen the glory of God clearly through that which is made. But because of sin, because of the irrationality of sin, we see all of these evidences of God's great power, of God's great worth, and we reject him because we suppress the truth in our sin. We are spiritually dead on arrival, and that shows the devastating effect of sin. The truth is right before us. But because Satan has blinded our minds, we cannot come to the right conclusion about God or about Christ because we simply cannot see we cannot understand. We cannot make the right connections. Therefore, we say, God doesn't exist. Christ, why do I need him? It's foolishness. The gospel is foolishness. That's what sin tells us. Right? Paul describes this blindness when he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, for, for indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Go back to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan's goal is to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they will not see the light of the gospel, so that they will not see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is in his very nature God, very God. Satan doesn't want people to see hope. He doesn't want them to see that there is hope when it comes to their sin. He wants people to dwell in darkness. He wants to have as many people join him in rebellion against God as possible. And this is the sober, sobering realization that we must make when it comes to understanding gospel rejection. 
Gospel rejection happens because there is spiritual death in those who do not believe. And they've been blinded from the light of the good news. Granted, God alone is able to work in hearts to make them regenerate so that they can become alive, so that they can respond to the truth of the gospel. But we, understanding God's sovereignty, need to remember that we can use our gospel proclamation to help people hear the gospel as well. Right? We're not off the hook. Just because God is sovereign, just because God is the one who regenerates hearts, doesn't mean that it's not important for you and I to share the gospel with other people. God can still use our gospel proclamation, no matter how weak it is, no matter how strong it is, to save other people. This means, then, that we cannot get so caught up with the events in our own lives that we forget to pray for those in our lives who are unbelievers. I'll confess to you that that is one of my weaknesses. Sometimes when I get busy, I forget to pray for my unbelieving relatives. I forget to pray for my unbelieving friends. We can't forget to pray about them, brothers and sisters. We have to keep praying for them. And not only that, but we have to be committed to actually spending time and engaging in evangelistic conversations with people who are unbelieving in our lives. And I am talking about actual conversation, not, hey, uh, what are you doing this Sunday? You don't want to come to church for me? That's not evangelism. It's not. Evangelism is not, hey, you want to come to church so that the pastor can preach you the gospel? I would gladly work myself out of a job if you would actually go out and preach the gospel to those who are in your lives. You are to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. You are to help them see that you, because of your sin, because of your rebellion against God, are in desperate trouble with him. But God, because he loved you, sent his son to die on the cross, rise from the grave, so that you might be saved. That's the gospel message that you need to proclaim. Not, do you want to come to church with me on Sunday? To start, and I'm not saying that you're wrong in doing so, but don't think that that's evangelism. It's not. There's a sobriety. There is an urgency to share the gospel, to take our part in this spiritual warfare, because we want to be a part of God's work to save sinners, so that they too may be forgiven, so they too may be able to worship God and to do so in joy Rather than in subjugation, every knee will bow and worship God. But we would rather be in his presence, at his throne, worshiping him in joy, rather than worshiping him in defeat, in the fires of hell forever and ever. Yes? So this leads us, this this sobering thought leads us to our third principle. And this is something that, for believers, this pushes you forward. This makes you want to worship. And this principle is gospel revelation motivates worship. Gospel revelation motivates worship. Paul's gospel was veiled only in the sense that those who who did not believe in God have been blinded by Satan. That means that there wasn't really anything wrong with Paul's content or his presentation of the gospel message. And right, Paul reaffirms that here when he show, in verse 5 when he shows that his gospel ministry, in contrast with the false teachers, is centered on Christ. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Instead of preaching about himself and his own accomplishments, Paul's emphasis here in his preaching is Christ Jesus as Lord. Notice that word order. Paul front loads Christ to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. But not only is he the anointed one, the one who will make all things right, he is also Lord. He, like God the Father, is worthy of all worship and obedience because he is one with the Father. He is the image of God, the exact image of God, the exact radiance of the Father. And if he is like God, if he is God and worthy of all worship, then nobody else deserves first place. Preaching must have at its center Christ Jesus as Lord because the gospel has at its center Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul also mentions here that 
he and those with him consider themselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Instead of promoting themselves, Paul and company focus on Christ first and foremost. But in terms of how they consider themselves in, in their ministry to the Corinthians, they consider themselves bondservants. Bondservants. That is to say, they serve the church knowing that they are servants of Christ. And if they are servants of Christ, they exist to serve the body. Why? Verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the reason why Paul preaches Christ Jesus as Lord. This is why he serves the church. Paul points back to Genesis 1-3 with this quote from God. And his point is this. The very same God who created the sun in the darkness by simply saying, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the very same God who speaks into your hearts, into your dark hearts, and says, or and gives us the knowledge of the glory of of Christ, of himself in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one who shines the light of the gospel in your hearts so that in your dark hearts you can actually see the gospel, the glory of God that is before you. That's astounding when you think of it. That same creative power that created everything out of nothing simply by, saying, by speaking it into existence is the same power the same creative power that gives you a new heart so that you, when you hear the gospel, can actually respond to it. You who had a heart of stone now have a heart of flesh because God did it. Because God gave you the heart to believe. As a result, there's no way that you can say that God is impersonal or that he doesn't care. He himself is doing all of the action in order to save individuals. He sent his son to become a man, to live, to die, and to rise from the dead. He, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates the hearts of people so that they can actually answer the call of the gospel to, re- to believe in Jesus Christ and repent. God is very, very, very personal when it comes to his interaction with his creation. The light that God has shown in our hearts is explained as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God himself is the gospel. He himself is the good news. He has done everything to bring us back to himself. He is the highest possible good. And he is trying to show that to us through Jesus Christ. And as we even think about the gospel, sometimes you think about it and you think about John 3.16. And you're talking about, oh, well, the goal of the gospel, the goal of being saved is so that I can have eternal life. Well, what's eternal life? John 17.3. Eternal life is that God's people knows God and Jesus Christ, his son. Eternal life is that God's people knows him and his son. God is the end goal of the gospel. He always has been. He always will be. That is why it is so important when we see here that the gospel is God shining the light of the knowledge of him, shining the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the image of God, the exact representation of who God is, when we know him, when we see him, when we believe in him, we're not just responding to Jesus. We're also responding to God the Father. And if the point of the gospel is to reconcile us with God so that we might have a right relationship with him, a right knowledge of him so that we can worship him as we ought to, then God, shining the light of the knowledge of himself in the face of Jesus Christ, is the exact thing that we need to know and respond to as Christians, even after being saved. Why is this fuel for our worship? Why do we proclaim Christ above all else? Because... He is our way back to God. Through him, we know God the Father. 
through Christ, we know God the Father. If you wonder why there have been a lot of fights recently about the Scriptures and about Christ, this is exactly why. If you get the Scriptures wrong, you get Jesus wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, there is no salvation for you. You have to know the Gospel. Not as you think it is, as the Bible says it is. The Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our own creation, of our own fancy, is the Jesus that we worship. Because it is the Jesus of the Bible who enables us to have reconciliation with God. Him we proclaim so that God may receive the glory and honor that He is due. Him we proclaim. So that we can understand how much God the Father loves us. Him we proclaim. So that we might live lives that are aimed towards glorifying God with everything that we have, with all that we are. When the glory of God is the thing that fuels us, when it's the thing that propels us forward, that is the thing that makes the church powerful. That is the thing that makes the gospel powerful. Because at that point... There is no ministry that is so unworthy of my attention that I will not do it. That means I can take out the trash for the glory of God. I can change diapers for the glory of God. I can go spend my hard-earned day off on Saturday for the glory of God, helping out. When the glory of God is everything to us, It motivates us to live for more than the things that are in front of us. It motivates us to remember that the gospel really is indeed good news and that we can go forward and that we can have hope and that we can proclaim that God is indeed good. And it's not just because I read so. It's because I know so. Life-changing experiences are not experiences that just come into our lives and cease to make an impact afterwards. They change the way that we look at things. They change the way uh, that we have, that it changes our attitude. It changes our actions. It changes our value system. Whether it be coffee, whether it be music, whether it be getting married, or whatever God's brought into your life, life life-changing experience demand an appropriate response. This morning, we've looked at three. Three principles from Paul's apostolic ministry that ought to fuel our worship of God. Gospel mercy motivates us to be bold in our faithful proclamation of the truth of God. Gospel rejection motivates us to sobriety as we understand the great urgency to pray and evangelize those who are lost, destined for hell. Gospel revelation motivates worship as we understand that God himself is the goal of the gospel, is the good news of the gospel, who made a way for us to get back to him through the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not overlook the gospel. Do not overlook the amazing glory that is present here in the gospel. Do not grow weary of it. Do not, do not be apathetic towards it. Allow for its beauty and glory to be what propels you forward. How can you be unresponsive to this? You can't. God's great involvement to bring you the best possible good himself should cause you to want to know more about him. That means that even if you don't consider yourself a reader, you need to read this book. You need to know what God says about himself so that you can understand more of who he is, so that you can respond to more of who he is, so that you can be consumed by his glory which makes you bold to proclaim the truth. You want to know what he is doing. And so that should drive you to your Bibles. It should drive you to read good Christian books. Good Christian books. Okay, not any Christian books. Good Christian books. It should drive you to want to hear more messages too. So that the depth of your worship, that your depth of understanding of who God is, will go deeper still. Now, if you are here today, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, know with absolute certainty that you are indeed 
truly in trouble with God today. Anything that you've done wrong, anything that you've thought that is wrong, is not just a slight infraction. It's not something that God can just shrug off. It's rebellion against an eternal God. And so even if it may be a slight infraction in your eyes, it's a slight infraction against an eternal God, which makes it eternally significant. For this reason, at this moment even, you are in danger of experiencing the eternal wrath of God against you for all that you've done. But know this. God loves you. Now you might, you might not be surprised by that. You might be thinking, well, of course he loves me. Who do, why wouldn't he love me? No, no, that's not the point. He loves you despite your sin. And because of his great love for you, he desires for you to be reconciled. He desires for you to have a relationship with him. And he's provided Christ for you so that you can actually have that relationship with him if you believe in him, if you believe in Christ, if you repent of your sin. He desires to save you so that you will not face his wrath. That is the amazing mystery of the gospel that God himself saves you from God. He himself has made it possible for you to have your sins forgiven. Believe in him this day. Repent of your sin and worship him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for your word, for how it shows us your glory, for how it shows us how great you are. And we pray, Lord, that we would be bold that we would be motivated to share the gospel with those who are in our lives. And that we would indeed live lives of worship that respond to gospel truth. That we live lives with expectation of being home with you. To rejoice in all of your goodness. And we pray that you help us to live in light of those things. We pray, Lord, that you would allow for your glory to consume our minds so that all that we want is to, all that we want to do is to honor you and glorify you. Help us to truly value you in our hearts and in our lives. So your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Have a blessed week.